This is QD Clinic, and I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic's brought to you by Room Now Live 2021. More on that later. Today, we're going to talk about sore throat and fever. In fact, it's a case of FAPA, P-F-A-P-A, also known as Marshall Syndrome. So, 27-year-old guy comes to me with a diagnosis. You know, the diagnosis already made by Dan Kastner at the NIH probably about 10 years ago, five years ago, something like that, when he presented with um, aphthous ulcers, fevers that would last three to five days, and then recur roughly every 28 days. He had uh, cervical adenopathy. Um, he had some axillary adenopathy. He had some abdominal pain. He had some diarrhea and, uh, and aching and whatnot, but really didn't have joint problems. No joint pain, no, no joint swelling, although he does get aching. So this is an interesting case because uh, he was seen twice at the NIH and then sent back to his doctors in Nowhere, Texas, where they gave him, at the instructions of the NIH, uh, anakinra. But it turns out that he didn't tolerate anakinra, had an allergic reaction. Sounds like he had really severe injection site reactions, which, by the way, if you've never used anakinra, I've used a ton of it over the years, not only in auto-inflammatory diseases, Stills disease, but also in RA where we did the studies in it. Um, injection site reactions are not uncommon, maybe half the patients. The thing about it is that sometimes it happens in every, with every injection. You know, again, half the patients, they get an, an injection site reaction with a, what looks like a welt, but it's not painful. It's really not itchy. It's just sort of a bother. And then it fades over two weeks and desquamates and goes away. But you'll get them every day for up to 28 days, and then after a month, they just stop. So it's almost like you have to take the drug long enough to get the effect to make the ISRs, the injection site reactions, stop. Interesting. Anyway, he couldn't tolerate it. He probably had severe ISRs. And, and then his doctor gave him, of all things, infliximab. And, uh, and he's done reasonably well since, not had any fevers, still has some GI complaints. So why is this FAPA? FAPA actually stands for the features of the disease. P um, is the um, periodic fevers. Um, second is F for fever. Third would be aphthous ulcerations. P would be pharyngitis. And A would be adenopathy. So those are the key features of FAPA. I'm getting the first one wrong. Let me, let me look at my notes here. Um, so, hold on, I'm not sure why. Yeah, it's periodic fever, P and F, APA. Um, the interesting thing about this periodic syndrome is it starts in kids in the vast majority of cases. Maybe up to 20, 30% can actually have a persistence into adulthood or maybe even an adolescent onset like this young man. The fever generally lasts three days and then recurs really every four to six weeks. In this gentleman, he said usually three, sometimes five, and temperatures of above, above 102. And when you have the fevers, his labs would be crazy looking, high set rate, high CRP, and he would have um, uh, oral ulcers and cervical adenitis, kind of since the diagnosis. There is not a genetic diagnosis, unlike many of the other auto-inflammatory syndromes, which are monogenic. Um, there's no known gene association. Some recent evidence suggests that there may be an association with IL-12P70, which binds to IL-12, and that's interesting when it comes to treatment options. How are these patients treated? They generally are treated with steroids when they're having attacks or just for the time that they're having attacks. In some, tonsillectomy works. In some, cimetidine. But generally, 
Biologics are not needed, and certainly fliximab has never been studied. Now, it is largely a pediatric disorder, but it can occur in adults. And you might look at a tweet that I put out um, two weeks ago from Susan Chinoy about FAPA, where she told us about Cantini's criteria for adult FAPA syndrome. And for that, they had to have fever, uh, pharyngitis, cervical adenopathy, abnormal inflammatory labs, and then intervening disease-free intervals to qualify. And again, this kind of same experience has been seen in kids as far as what works. Uh, in many cases, it's self-limiting. It's not usually a lifelong febrile disorder. The interesting thing about this person is, one, he needs high doses of infliximab, which makes me worry about what the diagnosis is. So I ordered a gene panel on him from Invitae.com. Talked about that in last week's uh, QD clinics. Um, and we'll see if he has another disorder that's looking like Marshall syndrome or FAPA syndrome, but in fact there's another um, another variant that could be found genetically. And there are several of them that have IBD as, as key features, because maybe that's why the infliximab is working in this man. He did have aphthous ulcers, um, and uh, I don't know of what his colonoscopy results, so that'll be interesting to see. The interesting thing that Dr. Shinoy brought up was this recent uh, association with IL-12P70, which you know could become a target. It turns out that a primalast is a reasonable inhibitor of IL-12P70, so maybe that might be a future treatment option for a patient like this. So uh, I think you should um, look for cases like this. Again, the distinguishing fevers is the periodicity that comes back every four weeks, every five weeks like clockwork, and that they have the associated aphthous ulcers and cervical adenopathy. They can have adenopathy in other places, but generally this is what's dominant. That's kind of where the diagnosis, and it is a clinical diagnosis that is that is improved by, as I said, steroids. Rarely do they try IL-1 in these people, but uh, I'm not even sure why it was even tried in this man. So that's it for this QD clinic. Again, I want you to consider our Room Now Live. If you're a fellow, uh, a rheumatology fellow, it's free registration for you. Just go and register, and you can either come to the meeting right now. I think we have 50 people coming to Fort Worth, and plus our faculty. Uh, about half our faculty are coming to Fort Worth. And, uh, and then we have hundreds who are going to sign up online. So you can uh, register for free and attend the meeting if you're a fellow. See you at Room Now Live. This is QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. It's coming up in a few weeks. It's a meeting with great speakers, really novel subjects. But you know why you don't want to miss this? This is a meeting unlike any other when it comes to discussion. At least 25 to 30 percent of the time is with you and the speakers discussing the case. Q&A, panel discussions, polling, it's highly interactive. It's made for either a virtual or live meeting and you can be virtual or live. Today's case is periorbital edema. What's it all about? A 19-year-old African-American gal presents to me with a positive ANA and periorbital edema. I mean, and she's really got this redness and swelling of both, both eyelids with a fair amount of edema. She really has no other systemic manifestations. Um, on laboratory testing, they found an ANA, 1 to 160. The CK was 900, and the aldolase was 12.3. Everything else was normal. Acute phase reactance was normal. You know, compliments were normal. Um, you know, the question was, does she have 
maybe lupus? Does she have myositis? Is this juvenile dermatomyositis? They sometimes have, um, you know, heliotrope uh, rash over the eyelids, and sometimes that can lead to both not only erythema, violaceous erythema, but also edema. Um, so we actually then went ahead and got an EMG, and the EMG was um, myopathic, low amplitude polyphasic, some insertional activity, and we said, well, this is probably um, juvenile uh, dermatomyositis, and let's, she didn't have Gottron's lesions or the other classic lesions of dermatomyositis, but nonetheless, we went ahead and started her on, uh, I think, very modest doses of prednisone, and like, um, modest doses of methotrexate, like 10 or 12.5, and she was doing well. She had very few symptoms. The methotrexate and prednisone made the eye swelling go down, and I was following her. Hadn't seen her for about six months because of COVID. So she, I see her about three months ago in a tele uh, video visit. She says she's doing good. She still denies any weakness. Um, the eyelid edema is kind of gone. Um, she's moving around. I make her do some, you know, jumping jacks and, uh, you know, m motor activity things. It looks like she's fine. So we get some lab tests. Um, she waits a while to get the lab test. And a month later, I get the lab test back. And the first one showed a CPK of 15,000. The second one on repeat shows a CPK of 23,000 and an aldolase that was like 38 to 40. Well, obviously, panic sets in. Call the patient. She denies weakness, rainouts, fever, rash, dysphagia, shortness of breath. Um, you know, it's really all kind of shocking. No trauma, no exercise, no intravenous drugs. Uh, another round of testing, tox testing, um, TFTs, usual things looking for sort of toxic myopathies, nothing. So we undertake aggressive management of her uh, inflammatory myositis. We could have done biopsy at that point, um, and I chose not to. I thought it was I, the numbers were too high for me to be screwing around with this. Um, she did have an MRI that did show muscle edema, although she had no, again, no weakness, and that was muscle edema in her deltoids uh, and upper arms that was done. So she gets put on higher dose methotrexate, split dose, 20 milligrams a day. She gets put on leflunamide, 20 milligrams a day. That's my go-to regimen. Yours might be methotrexate as a thioprine. Some others like to use methotrexate or calcium neuron inhibitor like cyclosporin. Some just really, really high dose methotrexate and really, really high dose steroids. Oh, and she got really, really high dose steroids. So I trained in Dallas with Dr. Morris Ziff, the ACR's first gold medal recipient, an icon in the field of rheumatology. And there were certain Ziffisms about certain disease management. Dr. Ziff, you know, a masterful uh, basic scientist and researcher, was pretty astute as a clinician. And one of his rules was, Newly diagnosed inflammatory myositis gets 80 milligrams of prednisone a day. I do it all the time. It works for me. I don't like to keep them on 80 milligrams of prednisone. Uh, and so I put her on two weeks of 80, two weeks of 60, two weeks at 40. And that's when she returns to me after taking about a month to six weeks of methotrexate and Areva 2. What's going on? She says she's dramatically better. So again, a young um, teenage 
uh, African-American female. She's kind of muscular. She's not skinny, but she's not fat either. Um, she denies any symptoms, but when I treat her, she says, oh my God, I feel a million times better. I didn't realize what was going on. I'm actually much stronger. I'm much more mobile, etc." So her CK went from, what was it, 25,000, 23,600 down to 1880. And her uh, aldolase from 38 to 5. So she is much better both clinically and laboratory. And we're only talking about four to six weeks of therapy. The bottom lines I want to leave you with here is, number one, the Ziphism, newly diagnosed 80 milligrams a day. You're not going to see a study that compares steroid regimens. Someday maybe we, we might, but... I, I like 80 and then I get to 60 and then I try to taper them rapidly because um, one of the things that's often not spoken about is the steroid toxicity in dermatomyositis. It's really quite high. Very high rates of serious infection uh, um, in pneumonia, hospitalizable infections. Very high rates of sudden quick osteonecrosis even after two, three months of high dose steroids. So I give them a high dose, but I take it down real quick. The point being that when you treat inflammatory myositis, it can take really up to eight to 12 weeks for them to clinically improve. They will improve chemically much faster, but clinically they may take as long as eight to 12. She's already on her way. I don't think she's out of the woods yet. I think we'll see the remainder of her improvement with time, but she's going to stay on leflunamide and methotrexate, and now I'm rapidly tapering her her steroids. Um, She's going to go down to 30 for two weeks, then 20 for two weeks, then 10, and then I'm going to see her and hopefully get her off sometime thereafter. Again, these cases can be exciting, difficult, challenging. I guess I, I was concerned that maybe she wasn't going to drop her CK because there was an, inter, an, an interval CK assessment that was still in the teens, like, I don't know, 13,000 or something like that. And anyway, she suddenly sort of turned around. Um, exciting case. Thought you should hear about it. Look at roomnow.live for registration. Hi, welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, where it's all about getting inspired interacting and the best of education our case is periorbital mass doesn't this sound familiar to a recent case like maybe yesterday except this one is not in a teenager this one is a 60 year old black female who presents with an orbital mass i mean it's big it's one-sided the whole eye is shut you can kind of pry open the eyelids and the eye and the the orbit the eyeball will move right and left and focus and vision is not impaired there's not proptosis but the whole eyelid is gigantically swollen um is uncomfortable is associated with some fever is associated with double vision that's going on for she says like six seven months and it's actually getting worse um, negative labs, uh, chest x-ray was normal, uh, an MRI was done and showed a significant amount of uh, unilateral lacrimal gland enlargement um, without um, any distortion of normal architecture. No other infiltrative masses or tumors were seen. Uh, she underwent a biopsy. The biopsy came back with non-necrotizing granuloma, a lot of inflammation, multinucleated giant cells present, felt to be compatible with, you guessed it, sarcoidosis. So this is a very, um, I've actually seen maybe, this is maybe the fourth case I've seen in my career. 
They um, seem they, they all presented kind of the same way. Uh, they all were um, a little bit difficult to diagnose. They took the made the rounds between ophthalmology, ENT, sometimes a hospital admission and whatnot. Uh, no other systemic involvement. This was localized involvement. We sent this patient on just to be reevaluated. She had already been evaluated by oncologists and cleared uh, an infectious disease as not having infection nor having any kind of malignancy. She was seen by pulmonary just to make sure that there was nothing else going on. A CT of the chest did not show any hyaluronopathy or other involvement within the lung. So this is isolated involvement. She was put on prednisone, very little response. Of course, since this is sarcoidosis, we really stepped up to the plate and gave her uh, methotrexate. A little bit better response. What are you going to do next? Well, there might be another other choices. Um, and uh, we ended up putting her on rituximab. Why? Literature search at the time suggested it. There was obviously a lot of discussion going on at the onset that this could be an IgG4-related disease, and we know that they respond very well. There's also good evidence that refractory sarcoid can also respond well to sarcoid. We could use a JAK inhibitor or an IL-6 inhibitor. Anyway, she did fabulous on rituximab. She received four courses, each course being two infusions of rituximab. We gave them every six months apart, and she was really in remission doing great. Now, the question is, we are four and a half years down the line. The swelling and is gone. The eye function is preserved and normal. And she wants to go off methotrexate. Again, she has not received rituximab in three years. So, what do you do? Well, we cut her methotrexate in half. She was only taking, at this recent visit, 7.5. And we were going to talk about the odds of recurrence, which I would have put at about 20% if she had fully gone off. But then I did an exam. And the exam showed what? She had normal pupillary function, normal vision. She had near-normal extraocular movements, except her um, involved eye did not, let's say that's the right eye, did not track equally well with the uh, left eye. And especially was apparent on, on when she would go to extreme lateral um, um, movement that she would have some weaken, weakness there. She would lag at the end and not go fully over. But when she went medially, she would go fully over and she would track better. So some maybe some lateral rectus, rectus weakness. And then she still had a little bit of puffiness on the medial side of that eye. So I said to her, listen, let's go another step. Let's go ahead and get an MR of the orbit to see if there's any mass or um, inflammatory activity, especially since we're now down to a lower dose of methotrexate. Uh, she was okay with that because now if we find that she has residual inflammatory tissue, we're certainly not going to be rushing off and stopping her methotrexate. Um, we probably would get her uh, reevaluated by ophthalmology. Uh, we probably would do another total reevaluation, uh, making sure that this still is just sarcoidosis and not infection, malignancy, IgG4, etc. Uh, again, it's, I think this is a very successful case of sarcoidosis that's been managed first with prednisone, methotrexate, and then rituximab. I think the, the learning point here is that sarcoidosis is more than just lung disease and arthritis. And you know the arthritis likes to be 
um, oligoarticular ankles and lower extremities more so than upper extremities. Extra, uh, extra pulmonary involvement is not uncommon. I like to remember and teach that the other name for sarcoidosis is called uveoparotid fever, meaning they can get uveitis, an eye involvement, in this case, lacrimal involvement. They can get parotitis and also lacrimal involvement, and they can get fever. Um, but there's uh, obviously there's other skin manifestations like enodosum and papular lesions and lupus pernio where they get lesions over the face, nose, um, and um, like malar areas. They can get Sjogren's-like manifestations from their uh, parotid involvement. Myositis and myopathy has been described. Uh, liver, uh, nerve, and uh, renal involvements have also been described. This, pa this patient, just isolated, lacrimal gland, all sarcoidosis. And yes, being managed by a rheumatologist. Are we not the greatest physicians in all the world? The greatest physicians go to Room Now Live. See you there. This is QD Clinic, and I am Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. Keen rheumatologists like us go to great meetings like this. This case is called RA or Not, as in... Ripley's believe it or not so a 65 year old man comes to see me for a second opinion he is from another state um, he's migrated his way to Dallas Texas with an, an adventurous history of athleticism um, outdoor sports and travel Lots of trauma, and he's been diagnosed with a rheumatoid and treated by another rheumatologist because of it. So he started out about five years ago with um, polyarthralgias, never a lot of joints, but his hands would hurt, maybe swell. His knees would hurt, his shoulders would hurt, his feet sometimes would hurt. He's actually had knee effusions in the past that were tapped. Um, said to be inflammatory, never saw the results, but no evidence of crystals, no evidence of gout. And laboratory testing was pretty normal with the exception of a rheumatoid factor of 25, normal being like less than 15, and a CCP of 200. So the question is, does he have RA or not? I've seen him now three or four times, um, and the same question comes up doc do i have rheumatoid arthritis he once had a scaly rash someone said maybe he's got psoriatic arthritis never saw a scaly rash no stigmata of psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis and when he comes to me he usually has a plethora of musculoskeletal aches and pains but the guy is a nut job when it comes to sports and hand gliding and cliff diving and you know skiing over rocks and sand skiing and he's torn rotator cuffs and menisci that i didn't know he could possibly have anymore and and you know the question is does he have wear and tear stuff or does he have inflammatory stuff labs have never shown inflammation his exam he hurts in occasional few spots so I've always said, listen, you're entitled to aches and pains based on your activities, but still stay active, you know, go for it, keep yourself strong, that's how you're going to avoid pain and keep yourself mobile and healthy, um, and, and you'll do just fine. We'll do intermittent labs on you, you'll take PRN medicines for pain management, he's like taking very little, maybe some over-the-counter anti-inflammatories or Tylenol. And so he comes back in recently, same thing, Doc, I'm doing good. You know, I tore my rotator cuff, you know, jumping off of a, 
a space station or something and um and that was repaired and he's next thing you know he's back in his bicycle going somewhere um uh but now he's complaining of some uh, you know ankle pain and um and that's about it on my exam this time he has um a clear-cut swollen um left mcp3 it's a one plus not quite two plus swollen uh it's a little bit tender um but it's squishy synovitis he denies any recent trauma there in fact he wasn't even complaining of that in his other ankle on the other side he had um a posterior tibial tendon uh tenderness no ankle swelling but posterior tibial tendon. so what do you do you repeat his serologies no they're still the same He's going to be low positive for rheumatoid factor. He's going to be strong positive for CCP. There's no family history here. His labs, CBC, chem profile, sedrate, CRP are all normal. Is this RA or not? Would you treat this as RA? Mike, could you? you? Could he get better if you actually use more aggressive therapies than what he's been taking? Well, this is not RA. This is not RA because he doesn't meet old criteria for RA, nor new criteria for RA. There's essentially no difference between this man and someone who you would label as having preclinical RA. And except they might even have a strong family history, meaning they've got arthralgias, they've got um, maybe even a swollen joint, and they might even be seropositive. And yes, some of those people will progress, but you don't treat them as if they are RA. You treat what they got. And that's it. Nothing more. You don't step up and give them your strongest therapy whatever you think that is you know some biologic or some new targeted synthetic you treat him symptomatically and evidence for that actually comes from his own history prior to seeing me he was on DMARDs for two years he took sulfazalazine he took methotrexate in good solid doses tolerated them well yet he still had the same complaints the same problems the same physical findings the same labs this is not RA. Even if you find a swollen joint, my advice to him was take a break, use some ice, take a little bit more of your non-steroidal. Um, you know, call me when you get six or seven of these joints swollen. Then we'll talk about RA. We'll see you in Fort Worth. A lot of people are coming to the meeting. We'll take care of you.